and uh, starting in verse 6, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21, this is the word of the Lord. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the uh, prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about uh, these things for the churches. I am the roots and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we are gathered here in, in worship now. Because you have called us here through your word. Your word is our life. Your word is our food. Your word is our light, a lamp to our feet. And it is so precious to us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would form in us a deeper and deeper love for your word. Uh, that it, through our study of it, you would lead us to our Savior, Jesus. And that we would know him and, and receive him by faith. We would follow him with obedience. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would instruct our minds and train us how to understand uh, uh, the, the great truths that are written to us in the Bible. And so we ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are uh, coming to the end of our uh, series on the book of, of Revelation. Today we're looking at the final uh, passage in the book of Revelation. And then actually next week, we're going to have one last week on Revelation. We're going to go back to the passage just before this one, which might be an odd ordering. But um, 
our staff was talking about the end of Revelation, which we've been studying for three summers. And the passage just before this really captures uh, really the vision of the book as a whole and really why I thought our church should go through this book. So we're going to kind of end on that note uh, uh, next week. So next week's our our final uh, final, uh, week on Revelation. But this week uh, we are uh, are looking at not only the final words of the book of Revelation, but the final words of the Bible as a whole. And uh, I think this passage really helps us to understand how we should think about the Bible. And, uh, you know, it's a very important skill in life that when a person tells you about themselves, you know, they tell you their life story, they tell you their history, they tell you about their childhood and the family they came from. When someone tells you that, you need to listen to them. And uh, you can't project on a person who you want them to be. You know, we all have assumptions about one another. If you want to really know someone, you can't just project onto them who you think they are. You need to listen to who they say they are. And it's the same with God. Uh, In the Bible, the Lord is saying to us, this is who I am. This is my story. And if, if we want to know the Lord, we have to be willing to listen to him in his word. And so this morning, I want to point out four truths about uh, God's word that we learn from this passage. Four truths about how to understand the Bible. This is what they are. Is that God's word is inerrant. God's word is good. God's word is sufficient. And God's word is ultimately about Jesus. Four things I want to point out from this final passage in the Bible. That God's word is inerrant. It is good. It is sufficient. And it is ultimately about Jesus. And this is so important because the Bible is really at the center of our whole life together as a community. And how we view the Bible is just essential to, to what God is doing in our midst. So I'm, I'm glad we get the opportunity to talk about the, uh, the doctrine of God's word this morning. So, four points this morning. And the first is this, that God's word is inerrant. God's word is inerrant, which means that the Bible is without errors. And this is, a, you know, especially important doctrine in kind of the modern era, you know, the modern world. Uh, people make all kinds of claims about how the Bible has been proven wrong, you know, whether scientifically or historically, the Bible's been proven wrong. And uh, there are, you know, basically two ways that inerrancy is described in this passage. And you see that there in verse 6, the first verse of this passage says, And, that, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy and true. And, and um, now, this is likely talking about the book of Revelation. It might even be just talking about the passage right before this. But these two words, trustworthy and true, I think really describe the Bible as a whole. And so I want to kind of talk about each of them, okay? So the first is that the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. The starting place for understanding inerrancy is the character of the one who has given us this book. Okay, the word here for trustworthy, pistos, uh, is, is used about God's character in numerous places in the Bible. So this word trustworthy is in 1 Corinthians 1.9. It says, God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And this is God's character. There is no one more trustworthy than God himself. And so the reason that we say that this book is without errors It's not because we can mathematically prove that everything in the Bible was true or we can historically verify everything that says. No one can do that. I mean, no one can go back in time. No one can, you know, check all these things for themselves. The reason we believe that uh, the Bible is inerrant is because we trust 
the character of the one who is speaking to us through his word. And one of the most important things about being a Christian is that I trust God more than I trust my own mind or my own emotions. God is more trustworthy than my own mind or my own emotions. And we live in a culture that gives absolute authority to the inner life, to the psychology of the inner person. And so we say, I don't believe in it unless it resonates with me, unless I, I feel it in my emotions or I, I can verify it with my own mind. And the Bible tells us that it's actually just the opposite. The Bible says the heart, the human heart, is deceitful. It's not trustworthy. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick, our inner life is. And so to say I trust my inner life more than I trust God's word is to completely get it backwards. It's actually I should distrust the things that come naturally to my heart, and I should trust what is certain that the trustworthy one says. So God's word is inerrant because God is trustworthy. Now, one of the issues with inerrancy is what happens when you come across something in the Bible that seems clearly wrong to you. You read something in the Bible, you say, or I, heard some, I read some article and on, so read some online, and it's been proven that this thing is not true. And, you know, in fact, I'll give you an example from this passage. There, there are a few verses in this passage that have not sat well with me. Actually, through the whole of Revelation, this passage I've had on my mind because there are a few verses I'm like, I'm not sure what to do with. And it's there in verse 6 and 7 where he says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Jesus says he's coming soon, back 2,000 years ago. And one of the interpretive principles that we've been taking as we've been reading Revelation, Revelation begins by saying that everything in Revelation are things that are going to soon take place. And so that's why we said these are about events that happened to the first century church. That's largely what Revelation is about. But then this verse says Jesus is coming soon. And if that's a reference to Jesus' second coming, then it looks like Revelation is wrong. Jesus didn't come soon. It's already been 2,000 years, and he hasn't come back yet. And so is this verse wrong? Now, some people will hear that and say, well, see, the Bible's wrong. This is proof. All these early Christians thought that the end of the world was about to happen, and they were wrong. Can't we just read the Bible and see that now we know that the Bible is wrong? My own logic is more trustworthy than the Bible. Well, it turns out, of course, there's a very simple answer to that. This verse is not talking about the second coming. Uh, in fact, throughout Revelation, there's been all kinds of comings that Jesus has. Jesus came uh, to heaven in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus said he was with the 144,000 martyrs in, in uh, Revelation uh, 14. And uh, one of the biggest events in Revelation is the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jesus came and judged Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That did happen soon after the writing of Revelation. And, uh, and the, the destruction of Jerusalem is one of the main themes of the book of Revelation. This book is preparing Christians for that event. And so often things that we thought were errors were just places where we lacked understanding. The error was not in the Bible. The error was in us. And so believing in inerrancy means I will not put myself in a place of judgment over God's word. I don't trust myself enough to say that there is an error in this book. How, how could I trust my mind that much to say such a thing? As Romans puts it, let God be true and every man a liar. And so because of the character of uh, 
God. This passage goes even further, though, to say not only that the Bible is trustworthy, because the character of the one behind the Bible, you know, makes us trust it, but also a second thing is about inerrancy is that the Bible is, in fact, true. The Bible is both trustworthy and it is true. The words themselves are the truth. And I can't tell you how precious it is to have somewhere in the world where you know the words you are hearing are true. And especially in our cultural moment that is so filled with suspicion and propaganda. And we, we, when we feel so frequently that we can't trust the news and we can't trust our universities and scholars and we can't trust our political leaders. And we say, what can we believe? Is there anything that is true that I can just hold on to and say, I know this is the truth. And what a f- breath of fresh air to know that the words of the Bible are true. Now, some of you might wonder, you say, okay, yeah, okay, the words of the Bible are true, but aren't there different versions of the Bible? You know, how do we know which version of the Bible is the one that's true? And most uh, Protestants would say that um, God's inerrant word is in the original manuscripts, the original autographs, the way you say it. So, you know, when the, uh, the Apostle John wrote down Revelation for the first time, that version is the inerrant one. And, uh, and some people might say, well, great. The original version that John wrote down is the inerrant one. We don't have that. We have a bunch of, you know, copies that have been changed all throughout history. How do we know that we have the real one? Um, We don't have the original manuscripts. Well, actually, in some way, we do. You think of it this way. Let's imagine that we had ten copies of the book of Revelation. And they all have small differences. You know, a phrase is added here, a word is missing there. And you say, well, which one's the original one? Well, uh... The thing is that they don't all have the same errors. So let's say you take manuscript one, and there's a a word missing in manuscript one. And you find in the other nine manuscripts, that word is included. So now you know, well, the original manuscript had that word. This one is the one that has the error. And then the manuscript six is added a phrase, but none of the other ones added that phrase. Oh, then we know that phrase. So it's using, through this process of all ten manuscripts together, we actually know exactly what the original manuscript said. And so when you read the Bible, you have to know this isn't a book filled with errors and we have mystery. Is this even really what God said originally? No. There's maybe one in a thousand words that we have even any question about was originally in the original documents. The Bible is by far the most carefully preserved piece of ancient literature. I mean, it's not even close to any other ancient piece of literature. And part of the reason is because Christians and Jews... We're persecuted. And when you're persecuted, what do you do with your scrolls? You hide them in the walls or you hide them in a cave so no one can take them from you. And then they get left there for 2,000 years. And then they get dug up and we realize, oh, we have all these manuscripts. And so when you read your Bible, you should feel uh, with absolute confidence these are the very words of God. The same spirit who inspired them to be written has preserved them throughout history so that you can read God's word with confidence. Okay, so first, God's word is inerrant, which means it's both trustworthy, the character of God assures us that we can trust these words, and they're true. The actual words are accurate, and they've been preserved by the Holy Spirit. But one of the fears that people have about inerrancy, when you say all these words are the truth, is there's this suspicion. You might not say this. But, you know, what if the Bible's really not good? I'm made to do all these things that the Bible says, but God really doesn't care about my personal well-being. 
And he's going to impose on me something that I can't even question. I don't have any freedom to question. What if the Bible is harmful? And so that leads to a second thing that we see in this passage, an important part of the doctrine of the word, is not only that God's word is inerrant, but second, that God's word is good. God's word is good. And you see that in the next line of verse 7 there. It says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And if you read the word of God and believe it and you obey it, it will result in profound blessing in your life. And, and many of you would say, I've experienced that. You know, there are things in the Bible that I didn't even understand, but I just say, you know, God's, this is the truth, so I got to do it. And over time, over years, over decades, you find this is health. This is how human life is supposed to be lived. This is good for me. And it maybe took me a while to really see it, but this is because of the goodness of God's words. And Christians have always found this to be true. Um, uh, Michael Kruger is a, a Bible scholar who's done a lot of work on the formation of the canon. How did the Bible get put together originally? And what books should have been included? And in his book, Canon Revisited, he talks about how there were these other Gospels, maybe you've heard of some of the other Gospels, that were not included in the Bible. You know, we should call them Gospels in, you know, scare quotes. The, uh, and the most famous is, is the Gospel of Thomas, which was a second century Gnostic kind of collection of supposed sayings by Jesus. And, um, and actually, I don't even think we knew that the Gospel of Thomas existed until like 1945. It got dug up in, in a, you know, Egyptian library or something like that. And... Uh, and one of the things he brings up is he says, you know, why is it that we have so many more copies of the Gospel of John than the Gospel of Thomas? And part of the reason is just because the Gospel of John is better. It's people liked it more. <laughs> they read it, and it was like, I mean, who hasn't read the Gospel of John about the woman at the well that Jesus meets there, and she's had five husbands, and he talks to her, and, and then she goes to her village and tells everyone about how he's, you know, changed her life and loved her, and or Jesus washing his disciples' feet. You read it, and you're just like, this is so powerful. This is so compelling. This is life-changing, and that's happened for billions of people throughout history. They love the Gospel of John, and other people read the Gospel of Thomas, and they're like, uh, not that interesting. There is a quality to the scriptures that make it better. And uh, people recognize these words are different. They have an authority. They have a power. They have a beauty and purity. They have a depth and a wisdom to them. And, you know, when I became a Christian, I was 16 years old. I'd read one book in my life. I hated reading as a child and as an adolescent until I got a Bible. And I was fascinated with the Bible. I didn't totally understand, but then I'd understand parts of it because it was powerful. It was rich. It was deep. It was like these are God's words. People recognize that when they read it. And so the goodness of the Bible is an essential component of our doctrine of the word. And actually the Westminster Confession, which is our doctrinal standard, we're Presbyterian uh, church, the first chapter is about the Bible, and it has a paragraph. I'm going to read this paragraph to you. This is what it says. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. You know, it's talking about you got the Bible was written over 1,500 years by like 40 different authors, and yet it tells this unified story. How is that even possible? 
And so uh, the full discovery it makes of the way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And I'll tell you, this is one of my great passions here at Christ Church, is that we wouldn't just say, the Bible's true, suck it up and believe it, whether you like it or not. No, we want to love God's word and see how beautiful and rich, and it's a delight to study. I mean, what a great privilege to think God's thoughts after him. It's, just, it's absolutely incredible. And so, uh, first, we see that God's word is inerrant. Because God is trustworthy, the words delivered, uh, uh, because God is trustworthy and the words delivered to us by the Holy Spirit are true. And second, we come to see more and more that God's word is good. It has a power and perfection to it like no other book and reveals itself to be the very words of God. Okay, but there's a third quality of God's word that I want to point out from this passage is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. So the Bible doesn't teach us everything about God. You're, you're gonna, God's infinite. You're finite. You, you're going to spend eternity learning new things about God. But it is sufficient for what we need to know now and live our life in this world as image bearers and to follow him. And in particular, it's sufficient to answer two questions for us. First, how should we live? But more importantly, how can we know God? And I want to talk about uh, each of those things briefly. So first, the Bible teaches us how to live. The Bible teaches us how to live. And you can see that there in verse 8, how it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, uh, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Those who keep the words of this book. What, is it, what does it mean to keep the words of the book? Well, earlier in Revelation, it uses the same word about keeping. If you turn over in your Bible just a few pages to Revelation uh, chapter 14, verse 12, it's a very similar expression is used there. Revelation 14, Verse 12, and you can see this is talking about keeping the word, but it says exactly what words are kept. It says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those who keep the commandments of God. And so to keep God's word means to obey it and to believe in Jesus. That's what it means to keep God's word. And so the word teaches us how to live. It's practical. It tells us things that we're supposed to actually do. And I think often Christians can think that the Bible only gives instructions about spiritual or pious matters. You know, how you should pray or how you should worship. But it doesn't really address how should I run my business or how do I have a relationship with my children or what is the meaning of the arts? How should I think about all these things? And uh, that's not true at all. The Bible speaks to all of life. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, you know, even the most minor mundane things do all to the glory of God. All of life is to be lived to God's glory, okay? So first, the sufficiency of the Bible means that on the one hand, it tells us how to live. But I think the second is even more important, is that the Bible teaches us how to know God. The Bible teaches us how to know God. And by uh, teaching us about our creator, we learn what we need to know to be saved 
and what our Creator's purposes are in the world. Now, someone might say, uh, you know, the Bible is not su sufficient knowledge for humans because there's all kinds of things that the Bible leaves out. You know, it would have been helpful 2,000 years ago if God had just, you know, told us about science and told us about medicine or told us about economics, and that could have just brought so much blessing, and instead we get parables and, you know, stories about Jesus and about the nation of Israel and all these pages. Why didn't he give us this, this knowledge that would have led to all kinds of fruitfulness? And so the question is, is that true? Did God leave all that stuff out? Well, if God didn't address science and medicine and economics, then why was it that in, it was in Christian lands that science was developed? You know, the Greeks were very close to getting science. So were the Chinese. Also, uh, Islam, in the golden age of Islam, the Muslims were very close to getting science. Why didn't they get science? It's because they didn't have a view of the world that there was a, a rational God who was ordering creation in an orderly way. It was the doctrine of providence that was taught in the Bible that opened our eyes to see, oh, there's mathematical patterns in matter. It's the Bible that gave the foundational knowledge for science. Or medicine. Why was medicine and hospitals developed by Christians? It's because the Son of God, when he was here, he revealed himself as a healer in the Bible. And his body was raised from the dead. So Christians believed in the goodness of the body and wanted to heal it. The Greeks didn't believe in the goodness of the body. Christians did because the Bible told them. So they developed hospitals. The Bible was the foundation for hospitals. Or what about economics? Why did economies prosper in Christian lands? Because the Bible revealed the goodness of work and the call to take dominion over the earth. And how it should be illegal to steal from other people. The importance of private property and these kinds of things that the Bible taught that made economies possible is the foundation for economies. And so the reason the Bible is so sufficient is not because it tells us everything about every subject, but because it gives us the foundational knowledge of the creator that makes all other knowledge possible. And that's really what verse 13, the Lord is saying here. I am the omega, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Everything about reality is encompassed within the knowledge of God. There is nothing the Lord does not know. And the Bible is sufficient because it's the foundation of all other knowledge. And one of the main things we learn about the character of God in the scriptures is his justice and his grace. You know, that, that kind of paradox. You see the paradox here. Verse 12 talks about his justice. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. You say, wow, justice. God's going to repay everyone for what they've done. And then just a couple of verses later in verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. So God punishes every sins and he says there's no sin that God is unwilling to forgive. You can wash your robes with Christ. There's both justice and grace. And what these verses show us alongside with the rest of the Bible is the great paradoxical character of the God of the Bible. God is paradoxical. He's three in one. You know, he's sovereign. He controls everything that happens in the world. And yet we still have responsibility to, you know, make decisions and to follow him. And Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he is perfectly just and abund ab abundantly gracious. And we don't like these kinds of paradoxes because they don't fit into our rationality. We can't comprehend everything about God. And so when we are uncomfortable with fitting God into our logic and comprehension we begin to start changing things with his word. And that's one of the, that brings us to the great warning 
of this passage. At the, here at the end of the Bible, we get this enormous warning in verse 18, which says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Of course, this is a tremendous warning to pastors who teach the Bible to God's people. We have to teach the whole Bible. We can't leave out parts that we don't like and take away from it. We can't add to it things that are our kind of our ideas that we want to introduce into there. And churches need to sit under God's word and say, we don't want to introduce any foreign ideas. We need the truth of God's word. And so, so far, we've seen three truths about the Bible, that it's inerrant, it's trustworthy, it's true, it's good, you find blessing in your life when you live under it, and it is sufficient. It reveals to us our creator, which is the foundation of all other human knowledge. But lastly, there's one more truth from this passage I want to point out is that God's word is ultimately about Jesus. If you want a summary of what the Bible is about, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. And here we are on the final page of the Bible, and we see that Revelation is Jesus' book of the Bible. Revelation is Jesus' book of the Bible. See verse 16? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And so, you know, up to this point, there have been all these other prophets, you know, throughout the Bible. There's Abraham, and there's uh, Moses, and Samuel, and David, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and John the Baptist. And then there were all these uh, apostles, you know, that Matthew, and Mark, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and James. They had been writing all these books of the scriptures throughout history. But now we have the final word, which comes from Jesus. And in ages past, God spoke to us through his prophets, but in the end, the last times... He speaks to us through his son. And this is because if you want to summarize what the Bible is about, it's about the person of Jesus. God become a man, dwelt among us, who has brought light and redemption to all people. And so if you want to see that God is trustworthy and say, why should I trust God that his word is true? Look at the person of Jesus and ask, do I find him trustworthy? Um, or if you want to know that God is good, look at Jesus, the friend to sinners, the healer of humanity. If you want to see God's sufficiency about how to live and how to know God, Jesus is the model for human life, and Jesus is the perfect character of God revealed to us. And what I love about this passage is, you know, we, we see the final verse of the whole Bible. And you're like, wow, the Bible is over a thousand pages. And maybe some of you, it's very intimidating to look at the Bible and to read it. And we come to the final verse of the whole Bible, and it summarizes those thousand pages for us. This is what it is, verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's what this whole story was about. The goal of all of history, all the promises, all the miracles, is that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be for all of us. And so as a people, let us never lose our passion for and devotion to the word of God. It's his great gift to us. Let us never lose our confidence in its truthfulness, its goodness, and its sufficiency. Because in it we come to know our creator and we know him only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we 
thank you for the great gift of your word. And, and we pray that your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words to be written, your Spirit, who has preserved these words to be passed down to us, that, Spirit, you would also give us as a community a great passion for studying your word, that we would talk about it, we would debate about it, we would obey it, we would trust in it, we would pray your word back to you, we would sing your word, that your word would fill our life together, and through its filling our life together, we would come to know its blessing and goodness in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.